In the 19th century, a growing middle class fueled by the Industrial Revolution saw the rise of a new kind of retail. These were huge department stores that offered goods organized by categories. Now we're deep in the digital revolution, and some department stores now seem too big, too impersonal, and frankly not very exciting. Enter neighborhood goods. This is a new type of department store. They're smaller, more nimble, built with new technology and a philosophy of experimentation. So what I want to know is this really the department store of the future? We're going to find out on this episode we've got Matt Alexander, CEO and co-founder of Neighborhood Goods. Matt, that's your cue. Live from New York. It's where we buy. I feel like I'm sitting here with the ghost of Don Pardo right now. This is amazing. <laughs> That's right, Matt. You're listening to Where We Buy. It's the show about the things we buy and the places we buy them. We are recording live at the Javits Center in Manhattan as a part of the ICSC New York Dealmaking Conference. My name is James Cook. I research retail and real estate for JLL. And as you know, this is the show where we talk with retail experts and visit shopping spots across the nation. All right, Matt. Matt Alexander, CEO of Neighborhood Goods, welcome. And uh, let's get started. You must be the busiest guy uh, in Texas right now. You had an uh, your first Neighborhood Goods store open, what, three weeks ago? Yeah, just less, uh, about two and a half weeks. You opened your first location at Legacy West in Plano, Texas, of all places. So. Plano, is that, I mean, is that the next Silicon Valley? I just didn't know it. Why such a high-tech store in in a place like Plano? Uh, I think for us, what we're invested in doing is getting into um, interesting markets and being a discovery and delivery mechanism to hungry and motivated consumers for, um, you know, the sort of products that they would typically not find in those markets. So you look at Plano, and it's, I think it's the third fastest growing city in the country, um, home now to Toyota's North American headquarters, amongst others. And there's been, you know, literally a, a housing shortage there because of the amount of the sheer volume of people that are moving there. But they're missing the sort of typical experiences you'd find in Soho and otherwise. And so for us, when we started talking to direct consumer brands, we found that uh, Dallas-Fort Worth as a whole tends to be in the top five markets for just about all of them or at worst top ten and then looking a little bit closer, Plano is sort of the bastion of a lot of that capital. And so in as much as we're able to get into that market and deliver something different and interesting, we firmly believe that there's a huge amount of sort of pent-up demand there where we can sort of uh, reach a customer that would otherwise sort of get this experience last. And so that's become sort of the bedrock of this sort of general expansion thesis for neighborhood goods is sort of looking at some of these sort of somewhat unexpected and unorthodox markets that we can open in uh, where we can provide a lot more value than we would if we just went into the sort of low-hanging fruit markets across the country. That makes sense. So, visitor walks into neighborhood goods. I know uh, in my notes here it's 14,000 square feet. So, what am I experiencing in that as a visitor? What, what do I get? Yeah, so you walk in the room, uh, it's 14,000 square feet in the format of, you know, ostensibly a square. Uh, if you come in the sort of main entrance, you're looking directly at our restaurant, Prim and Proper, uh, which is open 
uh, throughout our operating hours. Uh, serves great coffee, great food, great drinks. It's just sort of designed to be sort of a safe area for people that come in. They can go hang out. We've had a lot of people having meetings and things like that there. And so that's sort of the sort of very much at the sort of center of the space. Uh, either side of that and around the room, you're sort of surrounded by about 30 to 40 different brands at any given time. Um, those are presented through 15-ish discrete brand areas. So we have some brands like Buck Mason and Stadium Goods where they have their own particular area. All right, we're flashing forward. It's January and I am in Plano, Texas at Legacy West and uh, we're going to uh, check out neighborhood goods in person. Okay, according to this map, straight and then hang a left and it sh oh, there it is, neighborhood goods. Yes. Hey. Hi, so nice to meet, you. to meet you. My name is Fallon Johnson and I'm the director of marketing with neighborhood goods. All right, so we're standing and right when we walk in, I see this big arch for hymns, which is a digitally native uh, direct to consumer brand that I'm aware of because they advertise on a lot of podcasts and stuff. Um, so tell me, how did, what do we have here? This is like a hymns and hers island, I guess? Yeah, so um, the hymns space was put at the center of the store to make it a super approachable environment for men's healthcare. So um, we wanted, men to walk into the space and feel welcome to explore the hymns offering so um, anything from their vitamin gummies to um, their hair care products i always hear aren't they the ones that do the ads for like baldness male baldness yeah, yeah so i haven't I, I probably need to look into that. <laughs> they have their um, men's baldness kits here but they also talk about their prescription offerings and how you can get those online so over there, um, Serena has a pop-up with us. So she's here for about 90 days, I believe, from launch. And what she did was launch her Great Sizes collection with us with an in-store event. So um, she obviously appeared in-store, which was super awesome to have, and then announced her Great Sizes collection alongside Ashley Graham, who's... Um, a massive plus size model um, and women's activist. So, whenever you had Serena uh, Williams do her in store appearance, did that turn out a lot of crowds? Was it crazy? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so we had the event up on the website and we just put it on our Instagram stories because we wanted to trickle the news out. And the event sold out within like three hours, and there were people lined up like all around the block. I downloaded the app. So where did my phone go? Where did it go? Okay, so we've got the Neighborhood Goods app mm -hmm. and we're popping it open. So say we're sitting over at Prim and Proper, the restaurant at the middle of the store and you're having um, the Cure cocktail and you decide that you want those Stadium Goods shoes that you saw earlier. You think they're awesome and you want to pick them up. So you press this navigation button. Okay, and you just hit it. And then you request it like you would an Uber. Oh, wow. So now it knows that you're right here, and it'll send over an associate. You can also, if the store is packed, you can take a photo of yourself so that they can locate you more quickly. So I see over there in the distance, I see some, uh, some people uh, hanging out in a, in a bar area. It says prim and proper. Tell me about that. Actually, yeah. let's go over yeah. there. Let's. Oh, I see pastries. Yep, so we have some really awesome coffee. So 
the only other coffee coffee shop in Legacy West is Starbucks. So um, this is another alternative option. Uh, cookies and pie and quiches from Everett and Elaine, which is a local bakery. My favorite item on the menu is the Goods Burger. It's amazing. I have a friend who claims that he's a burger connoisseur and he gave the prim and proper burger a 9.6, which is, I believe is pretty high. Um, <laughs> That's pretty intense. 9.6 out of 10. I'm yeah. impressed. Yeah. I, I'm sad. I just had lunch. Otherwise, I would take up the challenge and see what my, my uh, ranking for it would be. You will have to come back and try it. Um, and then we have a drink called The Cure, which is a turmeric-infused gin drink with um, a poblano pepper and it's amazing and then our kind of claim to fame on the cocktail menu is the prim and proper old-fashioned which is a leather and tobacco infused barrel aged whiskey the residency is a concept where we'll, where we will feature um, all of the brands that are integrated into the store itself so as i mentioned rob wilson created a lot of the artwork for the store that you see hanging on the wall throughout the space, which is purchasable. And then um, Year and Day provided the flatware and plates and bowls for the store. Um, and they have items that are purchasable here. And then we use Simple Human um, with their trash bins and their soap dispensers and our bathrooms and, our, and throughout the store. And um, so we feature them over in our residency section along with Sight Glass Coffee that we feature in the restaurant, um, Framebridge Frames, um, Made in Cookware, who's out of Austin, and we use all of their um, cookware in, in the restaurant itself. Awesome. The last thing, we didn't talk about stadium goods yet, yeah. did we? We need to talk about that. Sure. Are you a big sneakerhead? I'm not, but I can appreciate them, and I love all the Supreme gear that we have in store here, too. Um, we have... <laughs> so this is have. behind a glass case, because this stuff is expensive, right? Because it has the word Supreme on it. So walk me through what, what we've got here. So we have a lot of these limited edition Supreme items. So we had some Supreme tennis balls before that sold out really quickly around this arena event. We have this Axe. <laughs> and even some boxer briefs that are supreme so just this is a hand axe that's got the supreme logo on it so i mean when you're camping what's what's that retail for it's 200 so that's a bargain <laughs> yeah especially if you're in the market for a, a hand axe um but yeah these are the interesting thing about Stadium Goods is it's um, an online marketplace, like similar to an eBay or um, or the like. And so any of these shoes, that like size nine pair of Yeezys, could run for four hundred dollars, but the size eleven could be two hundred dollars more expensive, just because it depends on the run and um, what's what's more limited edition than the other. So. Yeah, I think we want to create um, that kind of that right mix of brands that is similar to Stadium Goods. That's a traffic driver, but somebody else who might be more local is a discovery brand for somebody. It might be their new favorite local brand here in Dallas. Um, so it's exciting to curate that mix and even pair some of them together. Thank you so much for giving me the tour of this store. It's been fantastic. Thank you, James. It's been awesome to have you here for sure. 
for some people walking in, it doesn't immediately strike them. For, particularly for a, an older customer as being a store, they walk in and they're not entirely sure how to interact with it. And you sort of encourage them just to hang out and have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and walk around. And they're not used to not someone not coming up to sort of aggressively try to sell them or otherwise. And so uh, it is quite different, um, but uh, we've uh, been really pleased with how it's been received so far. I, I can't wait to get out there and visit it. Um, so tell me, talk a bit about the business model. Are these brands paying to be on your shelves? Yeah, in, in essence, there's really two different models. One would be a fixed fee per month, um, which is proportionate to the amount of space you have, however long you're going to be there, the sort of products you are selling, and so on and so forth. Another would be a lesser fixed fee in addition to uh, a percentage of sales, which varies from brand to brand depending on the product, how long they're there, etc. Uh, we also have some lesser fees for brands that are sort of just wanting to be integrated into the room, like Simple Human and Framebridge. Um, I, I suspect we'll sort of continue to dabble with different models and uh, you know be relatively playful there. But those sort of three options have been very straightforward for most brands and have been quite popular. And and so I suspect we'll end up you know testing a few more, but it'll be mostly consistent from there. How tough was it to find the partner brands? Were they lining up, or did you really have to beat the bushes to find them? Um, you know, I think we, we had a little bit of an unfair advantage by virtue of the group of investors we have. And so we went out very intentionally to raise capital from um, a really fantastic group of consumer venture capitalists, anything from Forerunner to Global Founders Capital, Maveron. Um, and if you look at all of their various portfolios, there's some overlap, but all of them are investing in some of the most interesting and exciting up-and-coming direct-to-consumer concepts. And so that certainly helped. Uh, and then Mark Masinta, my co-founder, and I certainly knew a lot of other people in the space as well. So we got to have leverage those relationships. And then when we announced the concept, we found that a lot of people, yes, were, were coming our direction with interest. And so we saw um, people applying online. We had, a, you know, we were very fortunate, you know, deservedly or otherwise, to get a lot of press and attention. And so we've had a lot of people gravitate towards the idea and the room. Um, and now since we've launched, now that people can actually see it and feel it and understand it, probably feeling it be the most important thing, um, we've, we've been very fortunate to have a huge amount of demand from a lot of very sort of established brands as well as the direct-to-consumer crowd that we started with. And so that's not to say it was incredibly easy. We certainly had to fight for people and we certainly had to be um, you know, persistent with some. Um, but we, I think we were, we were helped by a lot of extenuating circumstances. So let's turn, I want to talk a bit to you about technology because I know there's some really, you guys are really at the forefront of what you're doing with the in-store tech. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, at the sort of more basic level, we've integrated about 30 cameras throughout the room um, that are equipped with computer vision to capture general sort of customer behavior, traffic patterns, heat mapping, as well as capturing general demographics. Um, and so that allows for us to filter through sort of an e-commerce level of granularity to our partners and to inform our decisions as well. Um, in addition to that, we have uh, the Neighborhood Goods app uh, that, you know, at a distance, just like our website, you can go on, you can shop. It's a very editorially driven e-commerce experience. Um, you get closer to the store, say, within 25 miles, and it tips over into more of a focus on in-store pickup, on-demand delivery, um, RSVPing to events. When you actually carry uh, that into the store and open up the app, um, 
the UI changes a third time and uh, adds the option for you to be able to message with staff and have them come to you anywhere you are in the room. And then we also have a barcode scanner in there that allows for you to have a self-guided checkout. And then also if you wanted to use the app to sort of um, you know, gather contextual information about the brands that you're seeing as you walk around the room. So if you walk past Sonos or Primary and you want to know a little bit more, but you don't necessarily want to ask the question, you can just pull out the app and you'll find it all right there. In addition to you know, the podcast we did with the founder, you know, some of the editorial we've produced around them and sort of just provide that context on your own terms. It's really this sort of core recognition that a lot of retail can be really anxiety-inducing. People can feel very self-conscious. And so in as much as we can, we want people to be able to dictate how they interact with our room. And, and so that's certainly been a really core element of what we're doing. And then also for brands, it allows for us to capture a huge amount of anecdotal information and general sort of insight as to what is and isn't working. And you know, for a lot of the brands working with us, it's not, it's not an exercise in sales, but much more in informing their broader strategy and A-B testing new ideas and, you know, even testing new product types and things of that nature. And so uh, the data in many respects becomes the key. And what what does that data look like that you're giving to them? I mean, do they have access to a dashboard or, or, or how does that work? Eventually, right now it's much messier, more manual, um, all anonymized. We're not giving away anyone's personal information. We're not giving out images or anything like that. Um, we don't even really see it. We just get raw numbers. And so uh, the cameras at the entrances are capturing demographic insight. Um, and then the cameras around the room are tracking the distance from the top of your head to the ceiling so it doesn't end up double counting you and things like that. Um, and so what we're able to do then is, you know, every week or every month, whatever the cadence is, and it varies from brand to brand depending on the business, um, we send a report that says, you know, you had 10,000 people come into your space of which 30% transacted. Uh, it was typically this age range. This area was the worst performing, which included these products. Uh, anecdotally, we saw notes from our in-store team that these products... Um, would have done much better if they were available in X, Y, and Z other color, things like that. So it's just, it's designed to sort of provide the same sort of thing you'd expect from looking at a dashboard online for your website or your app, uh, but for your physical presence as well. And, and we're moving very quickly towards having a dashboard for those brands as well. But yeah, for now, it's mostly manual. And do you have a sense, um, uh, or rather, uh, do you have control where if, if a brand you know, if you, if you realize, oh, it doesn't work, if this brand is here, I should really move them there, or are you contractually obligated to keep them in this one spot that they paid for? So we signed, we sort of created these things called brand collaboration agreements, which is, you know, our jargon uh, that we've sort of overlaid across what is ostensibly a license. And um, it's very brief, five to 10 pages at the most, uh, very simple English. Um, designed to be the sort of antithesis of a typical lease. And what we're doing with that is um, allowing for brands to, um, you know, if, if something's not working, they can leave early if they provide adequate notice. Equally, if something's not working, we can move them. And it's designed to be a very sort of back and forth relationship. So if we see that, you know, we think they aren't working well in a particular area of the room, we, I, we, I think we'd have a conversation with them and try to move them. I don't think area of the room is going to be an issue just because... The way it's laid out right now, everyone's kind of in a good sort of first class position. Um, it's really a matter of whether or not they have like a deeper assortment of products, they want to broaden that, things like that. And so we are open to different ideas, different formats, but it's meant to be very much a back and forth relationship. 
I want to ask you a little bit about um, food and beverage. So on this podcast, we've focused on um, uh, uh, the Sweaty Betty flagship in Soho in London. I don't know if you've been there, but the, t- the Tom store. Um, there's a whole host of retailers right now that have some kind of F&B component uh, in them. Like that is the new thing. They want to people to come and hang out in their stores uh, and have a drink, get some food. So tell me a little bit about Prim and Proper. Is it a coffee shop or is it more like a restaurant? And, and how did that, you know, tell me about how you decided on all that. Yeah, somewhere right in between. So we have um, an amazing coffee program. Uh, we brought in Sight Glass from California. It's the first time they've ever been in Texas. Um, we worked with a guy called uh, Eddie Campbell to work out our cocktail program. He's one of the top mixologists in the country. And then we worked with Frontburner to develop the actual operations and menu of the restaurant. They're one of the top multi-unit op- restaurant operators in the country as well. And so a huge amount of thought and wisdom went into it. Um, the goal was to have a really simple menu that you could crave. Um, and so we weren't looking to try to win culinary awards. It was much more focused on what, if you were out shopping, might you sort of think to yourself, oh, I really want that. And so we have like great tomato soup. We have a great, like, honestly, our burger might be one of the best in Dallas. And I, that, that's a lofty statement. And clearly I'm biased. But in, in as much as I can be honest about it, I was stunned by the quality of our food. I thought it was going to be much worse. I, th- I thought it was, <laughs> was going to be great, but like I, I, had no, I had no idea it was going to be as good as it is. And we've sort of had this funny sort of trend where we've had lots of um, food-related sort of journalists stopping by and really enjoying it. And um, yeah, it's, it's, we've had a really positive experience there. And I, and I think it's, we, it, the responsibility and job of Prim and Proper is really twofold. One is that Obviously, it provides people a really great reason to come in and hang out. And we've seen a huge amount of people walking around the room with a glass of wine and enjoying themselves. And I think it just helps, you know, reduce the sort of tension of being in a store. Um, second is that, you know, we are ostensibly a tool set for brands in a physical sense. So they come in and we provide the space, the staff, the tech. They can use it however they want or they can ask us what our sort of best guess would be. Um, having food as part of that tool set is really interesting. And it's something that um, a lot of them have never been able to dabble with before. So if they host a pop-up in Soho, they can get it catered. They can have drinks brought in. They can you know, do all these sort of different elements. But it's expensive, and having it consistently is problematic. And then with others, there, there's the coffee program. Some of, and then a lot of department stores and concepts like restoration or hardware obviously are extremely well-known for having great food. Um, and so it's not necessarily a new idea for us, but I think um, providing that to the sort of brands we're working with is important. And I think also providing just that sort of introductory area for people coming in is really important as well. So I think we're going to see a lot more from it. Honestly, my, my general reaction to it right now is that I think it's going to be a bigger deal than we thought it was going to be. We were mostly thinking of it as this sort of great marketing mechanism, you know, download the app and get a free coffee and things like that. And we've certainly been doing that, but... We're also seeing a lot of people just hang out. And, and that's, it's been, you know, one of the greatest things as an entrepreneur is being able to see people use your product and your idea. And so being able to see people sort of sit in there for hours at a time and come back day after day and hang out, um, it's the sort of ultimate way to deliver endorphins. And so I feel great about it. And so they're, uh, they're hanging out both during the day. Are they coming in for drinks at night and hanging out then too? Yeah, I mean, I don't have the data to completely back it up right now. I mean, we're obviously so early in. But anecdotally, I would say that probably 
40 to 50% of our transactions are occurring in the store after 6.30 p.m. Uh, a lot of people are coming in at night, and part of that's attributed to the development Legacy West, where there's a huge amount of great food and things like that. But um, it's been really interesting. People have been coming in, and you know, if we offer free drinks, we typically see people have one free drink and then buy two more for themselves. And people spend quite a bit of time in there. And I don't have, you know, we've been capturing a huge amount of data. The thing we weren't capturing initially was um, dwell time and things like that. So I don't have the specific number, but I can tell you just purely from an informal perspective, there's been a lot of people spending time and, and that Neighborhood Goods is probably at its best around 7 to 8 p.m. every weekday evening. And then it's obviously busy on Saturdays, Sundays, but um, weekday evenings has been a big point for us. So your store, Neighborhood Goods, it's a collection of like sections devoted to different brands for the most part. How do you, as looking overall at the big picture of neighborhood goods, how do you ensure that it has its own identity when you've got, it seems like there's all these separate brand identities fighting against each other? Are you the master curator of all this? Is that your role? Uh, In essence, yes. Um, So there's a few ways we went about it. In the very early days, you know, I think a lot of direct-to-consumer brands are sort of known to have fairly similar branding and approaches to marketing and so a lot of it's done here in New York and a cursory glance at any sort of uh, set of ads in a subway station they all look fairly similar and I think for us what was important is that we had distinctive branding but that wasn't like incompatible with those sorts of brands coming in and so we thought about that from the early days as to how our logo and our identity would sit alongside brands like Hymns. Um, and then we sort of, when we started thinking about the room, we were very focused on having a huge amount of porosity and transparency throughout the room. So there's not, there's no walls. Uh, it's just, if you're standing in one corner of the room, you can see clearly across to the other side. And that's been really important for us that everyone is about on equal footing, regardless of where they are in the room. And then we standardize signage for all of them. So we have this sort of recurring wire mesh or metal sort of mesh uh, visual sort of motif throughout the room and we use that as a fixture system for signage it's above the restaurant it's throughout the room and so that's been really really useful and so brands have their own logos above their areas obviously their own uh, products and like various takes on those um, but it's it, there's a lot of consistency there so all of them are white all of them are cut the same way uh, all of them are the same depth And so we've thought a lot about how to have in an inherently inconsistent environment as much consistency as possible. And so that comes from staff, that comes from our approach to design and architecture. So everyone's running off the same fixtures, they're running off the same design, they're running off the same technology platform. It's all staffed by us. And so certainly there's going to be areas that feel different than others. But I think you know intuitively as soon as you're in the room that you're at Neighborhood Goods. And the goal for us now and the challenge is how we extend that to different markets, different formats. So if we right now have one big floor with 23-foot tall ceilings, what happens when we go to a location with three floors with 14-foot ceilings? And so these are the sorts of things we're starting to really dig into and think about now, as, as well as coming up with, now that we've seen it and actually know what we're talking about a little bit more, um, much more sort of formal merchandising guidelines and expectations for how much product we need in the room. So let's talk a little bit about expansion. Um, what what are the growth plans? I'm sure you've got a lot of landlords interested in having having you come to their centers. 
yeah, we, we again, we've been very fortunate. I think we've had, um, we've been very fortunate to have really great timing with this. Um, I think a lot of people have been talking about new sort of retail formats and concepts in this sort of space, and we've seen a few other concepts out there. And I think people have been sort of waiting for something to come into existence that made sense. And so um, I think we've been, we, we've, well, we've certainly been getting a huge amount of interest to expand. Uh, we haven't sort of announced it yet, but on the capital front, um, there's been a huge amount of movement there, and a lot of our investors have been really excited with everything. And so I think our current sort of trajectory is to uh, meaningfully accelerate what we had been planning to do otherwise. And so I think we were initially thinking about, you know, we had opened one this year and then probably two next year, and I think it's going to be more like five next year now and probably double that the year following. Um, and then, you know, I think in terms of where we go, and the formats, I think we're open to a lot of different ideas. Uh, you know, poetically, a lot of the spaces that we're looking at right now are old department stores, uh, which is interesting. Um, but I think for us, uh, what's interesting is to continue to find and identify markets like Plano that can be a little bit different and a little bit unique, um, where we are contributing something really meaningful beyond just being in Soho, right? And so I think we'll hold off New York specifically for a little while, but, um, you know, we, we're going we're gonna to move very quickly and while we're here my business partner and I are having lots of meetings and hopefully wrapping up a few conversations there and um, and so that is something we'll be talking a lot more about soon I suspect that's awesome I'm going to be paying close attention to uh, where you guys go I definitely am going to visit the next time I'm out uh, in Dallas um, but uh, you know I'd love to see a neighborhood goods I live in Indianapolis Indiana mm -hmm. so you know that's a smaller market that could use some excitement so you know you know, maybe uh, we can have a talk about having a yeah. neighborhood, uh, neighborhood goods open up in my area. For sure. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we've been talking to Matt Alexander, CEO uh, of Neighborhood Goods and founder, right? Or co-founder? Yes. Co-founder. Co-founder. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Thank you. If uh, For listeners out there, if you have a comment about today's show, you can always leave a message on the Where We Buy hotline and we'll use your voice on an upcoming show. Just give us a call at 602-633-4061 and be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. You can subscribe to Where We Buy on the iPhone podcast app or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Where We Buy and hit subscribe. You can also go to our website, which is wherewebuy.show. And a special thank you today to the ICSC that worked with us to make this live podcast possible.